Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. David Ratz and Dr. Michel Beaulieu. Dr. David Ratz is adjunct professor in the Department of History and the Department of Northern Studies at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada. He also holds the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Canadian Force Army Reserve. Dr. Michel Beaulieu is Professor of History at Lakehead University. He is also a docent of Social Science History at the University of Helsinki, docent of Modern North American History at the University of Oulu, and an associate at the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University. He is also an honorary colonel with the Canadian Armed Forces. Today, we will be discussing their newly published book, The Little Third Reich on Lake Superior, A History of Internment Camp R, published in Edmonton by University of Alberta Press 2015. It is an honor to be with both of you today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ari. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I am. Thank you. It's good Good to be here. Can we kindly begin by talking about Ernest Robert Zimmerman, the okay. individual mentioned on the front cover of the book? What can you tell us about his life and his legacy? Can you tell us about his personality? Can you tell us about your relationship with him? Yeah, Dr. Ernst Zimmerman uh, was a... Uh, professor of history at Lakehead University. He he passed away in uh, 2008. Um, For both Michelle and I, he was uh, both one of our professors, a mentor, um, and he was um, uh, someone who became a a close friend and colleague uh, in later years, as both Michelle and I started teaching at at Lakehead University. Um, Yeah, he he was a larger-than-life character, very, very opinionated, uh, but also someone who took a, a, a keen interest in his students. So for both Michelle and I, he was uh, one of the key influencers 
who helped us develop our uh, research and writing skills. And so um, from that point of view, uh, Dr. Zimmerman started researching the history of prisoner of war camps oh, more than uh, more than a decade uh, before uh, he passed away in 2008. And uh, he'd been working on a manuscript about the prisoner of war camp, well, the internment camp at uh, Red Rock, Ontario, known as Camp R. Um, and so from that point of view, he'd, uh, you know, interviewed, uh, uh, corresponded with a lot, lot of uh, former uh, internees and prisoners of war um, and done a lot of research in archives and so on and had got a first draft manuscript together. It was, it was uh, uh, not complete, but he managed to get a, uh, a publisher, the University of Alberta uh, Press, and uh, when he passed away, he had this unfinished manuscript. Um, and so from our point of view, um, it was something that we undertook um, as, as, a, as a labor of love to, to complete it. Um, from uh, the point of view of picking up the manuscript, it was, it was, it was with a, a bit of foreboding or for a bit of foreshadowing. Um, we had met with Dr. Zimmerman um, just a few weeks before his passing and we we were at uh, a local uh, restaurant which was one of his regular haunts where he would often hold lunches and talk to students about history and current of current affairs and both michelle and i were there and um you know he dramatically you know at one point put down his drink and looked at us and in in, in sort of a characteristic fashion he had a very uh sort of characteristic way of, of pointing his finger when he talked looked over his glasses at us and said that if anything should happen to him, he wanted us to make sure that, that you know, his project was completed, that this manuscript was completed, that the book um, got to publication. So, you know, we didn't uh, think much of it. You know, uh, Ernst had been one not to, uh, to one who wanted to encourage his students not to try and forecast the future based on history or or anything, anything else other than, than facts and, and data. Um, but this was it turned out it would be our last supper with him and our last meal with him. And uh, we then ultimately got the tasks of, of, of bringing this manuscript to publication with, um, you know, there was whole sections that needed to be uh, uh, fleshed out that, that, that Ernst had only had, you know, a, a rough outline for and others where things were the whole sections and, and, and such had to be reorganized so that everything was coherent. So when, what we did was we were really uh, author editors. Uh, we picked up the manuscript, worked through trying to make sure that we maintained uh, Ernst's um, a voice throughout the whole manuscript, but at the, at the same time, making sure it was coherent, that everything that was being said could be backed up with research and, and data and, 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 and so on. Um, and that took us several years from the, from, from this passing in 2008 till, till 2015, when the book came into print. So at least for me, and, and I think I'm speaking, can speak for Michelle as well. It, it was a labor of love. It was something we were doing that we wanted Ernst Zimmerman to have his final um, scholarly work uh, coming to print, and so as a result, we're we're listed as editors on on the book. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to know, know about uh, Dr. Ernst Zimmerman, but uh, Michelle, can you pipe in? Yeah, I mean, no, I think that does it uh, pretty good justice, David. I mean, in terms of, I mean, one of the things that um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's always that his former students would mention, I think David really said it really well, is that he was larger in life. I mean, a very commanding presence in the classroom, a uh, very commanding presence in, in everything that he did, either when he ran for politics or uh, was uh, in charge of our faculty association. So when he's an individual who, when did ask something, you, you, you sort of sat up and you listened, um, you know, and it was always very much, um, you know, direct to the point. Uh, but also with genuine fondness, genuine affection in terms of when he would, especially when talking to former students. So, I mean, even though at that, you know, the the, the last dinner, last lunch, uh, you know, we kind of scoffed at the fact that, you know, nothing is going to happen to someone who, you know, for a better part of decades had figured prominently in David's life, you know, my life, uh, but also literally hundreds of undergraduate uh, and graduate students. You know, the, the fact that something, someone like that would be able, would disappear, uh, was almost unfathomable, un unthinkable. Um, you know, it's also touching too. I mean, you know, we have a lot of fond memories. I mean, he was a, an interesting individual. We'll just leave it at that in terms of, I mean, many individuals, uh, he wrote his own obituary and many individuals he said would remember him fondly and others wouldn't. Um, but I mean, even those, um, you know, who were critical of him could never fault him for his passion for those things that he felt very strongly in. And, you know, being a, a German immigrant, someone who had fled um, um, and the, the trials and tribulations that occurred in the Second World War, had come to Canada, established a new life. Um, there was something uh, about the experiences of, of, of prisoners of war and, and the internment camps that as he, you know, his career took off within northern Ontario and he learned about it, you know, lit a fire under him, became very passionate about it, uh, particularly, you know, he was always a champion um, in, in my experiences with him uh, for those who had no voice. I mean, it's one of the things that we often say that sometimes historians will will try to do as part of their work and aspire to. And in the case of the those who were prisoners in, in Red Rock, I mean, it, it's a story that often um, has been overshadowed by larger events in the Second World War or the Canadian experience in the Second World War. Um, but many of the individuals, you know, as I'm, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, um, they themselves were some of the most marginalized individuals uh, during the Second World War. I mean, it's easy to focus upon it. And this, I think this is what Ernst taught us um, as students, um, looking at those who often are overlooked. I mean, it's easy for something like Camp Barn. I think this is where his passion came from to focus on um, those that were notable or um, those that were Nazis, etc. Um, but it, the, the story of Camp Barn is much more than that. I mean, there are many in, innocent individuals that were interned because of policies of the British and Canadian government. Um, a high number uh, of individuals who, in fact, were Jewish, who found themselves at the wrong place at the wrong time, were scooped up and then found themselves in a camp surrounded by the very individuals that were trying to exterminate them uh, in Europe. Um, so, I mean, this type of passion um, in, in this work and trying to unravel the story and, and what occurred at the Camp R and across Canada, um, you know, is inspiring. And I think it inspired David and I and, and many others to, you know, when unfortunately he did pass away, to make sure that the story that he'd been working so hard in many countries around the world and the archives, um, uh, you know, dozens of interviews with individuals who had formerly been in um, not only the Red Rock camp, but other camps in Canada, uh, to have their story told, but to better to better understand, you know, what occurred at this part of, uh, of history. So, um, you know, so this this book, you know, for us is, was, as, well, as I said several times, is a labor of love, but it fits neatly into the types of things that Michelle and I normally uh, research and write about, you know, it, it's connected with Northwestern Ontario. Um, it's it's um, 
And for me, it's also connected to military history. So uh, we find find these things fascinating, and and that's something that Ernst imparted to us. You know, having passion for the things that you're researching, writing, and doing, and so it, it made it very easy uh, for us to to pick up the the loose threads and and, and carry on. And you know, um, for myself, it it also has an you know sort of added personal connection because uh, the uh, my rats grand great great grandparents actually emigrated to canada and they settled in in the red rock area so um they were there at, at the time the camp uh in the air in the area within the vicinity of the region uh when the camp was operating so there's a, a bit of a family connection in that sense although none of them were at the camp or involved with the camp um but it, it's part of of our region's sort of history and mythology and, and that's one of the things that um uh, Ernst uh, made a, a big effort to, to uh, unpack was a lot of the mythology surrounding the camp that uh, sort of existed within the region. There was this perception that the camp housed all these these dangerous Nazi uh, summer, submarine uh, crews, you know, U-boat crews, and Luftwaffe pilots, and that they mingled with, with the local community. But as it turns out, uh, everybody who was at Camp R in Red Rock uh, was a, a civilian internee, uh, an, an enemy alien civilian internee uh, that had been in, uh, imported uh, from Britain and uh, uh, found themselves on the shores of Lake Superior, um, sort in the middle of nowhere, um, and having to, uh, uh, w- you know, uh, live in those types of conditions. So, um, yeah, so that gives you some of the sort of the the, the background to you know why we were uh, interested in doing this and and. Um, uh, you know, the background on Ernst Zimmerman. So, um, you know, in terms of, of the camp, um, it's, uh, it was Canada's largest civilian in, uh, internment camp. Um, it opened uh, the beginning of July, July 2nd, 1940, and it closed on the 26th of October, 1941. And it was called Camp R. There was a, a, a naming convention at that time where they sort of uh, just called it a, a camp and then a, a letter that sort of coincidentally uh, mimicked the, the name of the community that they were at. Um, and it housed about 1,150 Um And the book goes through uh, the history of that camp, the experiences of, of the people there, the whole process, but whereby they were rounded up, um, uh, processed, uh, labeled uh, into various categories, and then uh, shipped to Canada and um, uh, put into the conditions at, at Camp R. Um, and in the in the, sort of with the haste with which uh, all of this occurred, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at you know, at the beginning of the war, uh, the British come up with a system where they're going to deal with um, enemy uh, aliens within in the British Isles, and they they have them register and they go through and they there's a a tribunal process which categorizes them class A, B, or C, depending upon the degree of security risk that the person was thought to be. A being those of uh, the, the highest security risk, the, the most dangerous enemy aliens, and those ones had to be interned uh, right away. And then there's class B, uh, people who were a little bit more suspect, and depending upon the circumstances, could be interned. And then there was the class C, the, the, those that weren't um, considered any threat, but still had to register and and uh, report to, to the authorities. But then through 1940, 
the beginning of 1940, as the, the the German armed forces are going seemingly going from victory to victory, um, there's a paranoia, hysteria, xenophobia that develops, and there's this sense that amongst all these enemy aliens, there's about 75,000 of them in, in Britain at the time, uh, there was a potential fifth column. That was that expression where there was this, you know, these agents and saboteurs who could undermine the war effort. Um, and that they should be um, uh, all locked up um, and thereby helping secure the British Isles against potential invasion. But as the the, the German victories mount and, and in, in May and June 1940, you know, there's the offense, offensive on the Western Front where the, the German forces invade Holland, Belgium and France and, and, and France is defeated, um, you know, Britain's by itself in Europe facing the uh the nazis and there's a, there's a panic and basically the order goes out to intern the lot or call her call her the call her the lot is sometimes the expression used and indiscriminately uh all of almost all of the uh uh enemy aliens are are, are rounded up and put in internment camps and in that process um the british government is in negotiation with uh uh, Dominion governments, you know, Australia, Canada, South Africa, to take some of these prisoners off their hands. And the way the we won't go into a lot of detail about the negotiations, but the negotiations were going back and forth. And basically, the idea was they would send the most dangerous ones, get them out of the British Isles, so that way that would remove that threat in case there was a German invasion of Britain. And it would also reduce the number of people that Britain would have to feed given the fact that they're under rationing and everything has to come to Britain uh, by convoy. So um, that was the agreement worked out by the beginning of June uh, 1940. And so the Canadian government uh, sets about finding locations where we can set up internment camps in Canada to handle and contain what are the Canadian government is told are these most dangerous enemy aliens. You know, and, and they... Um, uh, look at you know places like um, uh, I try to find my list here. Uh, you know, outside of Fredericton, Quebec City, Illinois, um, Trois Rivières, um, uh, Monteith in Ontario, and of course uh, Red Rock. So there's a number of camps that are, that are picked picked out, and so Red Rock is is, is perhaps some place that was thought to be ideally suited. It was remote; it can only be accessed at that point by um, the the rail line. Uh, there was a road from Red Rock to, to uh, the cities of Port Arthur and Fort William, but really it, it was remote. It was on the shores of Lake Superior. There was um, an, uh, 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 the Lake uh, Sulfite pulp and paper mill that located at uh, Red Rock, which actually never really got on into production. The company uh, went into receivership, went bankrupt. And so there was this mothballed paper mill with bunkhouses and a few other administrative buildings, which could easily be converted into a camp. You know, so put barbed wire up, put guard towers and that sort of thing, and you could convert it into a camp. And so construction on the camp began in the middle of June and was ready by the time uh, the internees arrived at the end of June. So the internees that are going to uh, wind up at Red Rock are, you know, um, rounded up in Britain, loaded onto the uh, passenger liner of the Duchess of York. Uh, it leaves uh, uh, England and sails and arrives at, at, at Quebec. Now, there it wasn't, this is the part of the, the haste with which it was done. There was no documentation sent with the prisoners. 
so you could tell who was the who were the, the class A, class B, or class C prisoners. You know who, which ones were the the, the the big security risks and which ones weren't. And the fact that you're even sending class C and class B prisoners um, meant that that was not the the British were in their either incompetence or haste or or whatever weren't living up to the agreement with the Canadian government that they were sending just the the most dangerous enemy aliens. And so you had people that really shouldn't shouldn't have been rounded up and, and sent to Canada as security risks. And we can talk about that uh, uh, in a minute. But basically, they get to, to Quebec and they're met by their future guards, which is the uh, soldiers of the Fort Garry Horse, which is a eventually goes on to become an armored regiment and, and fight in, in, in Europe. But they're they're quite surprised. There's a there's a, an odd mixture of people that arrive. Um, there were actually some prisoners of war on that ship, but they weren't destined for Red Rock. But the the rest, the ones that the Fort Garry Horse soldiers encounter, they're a mixed bunch. I, I sometimes describe them as a motley crew. You know, there's old men and boys. Um, a lot of them were actually refugees from Nazi Germany. Um, there was uh, rabbis, there was all kinds of Jewish people, and people who were avidly anti-Nazis, Nazi, and therefore fleeing Germany and looking for a place of refuge. Um, but there was also merchant seamen, enemy merchant seamen, uh, sailors that were uh, captured at various points or arrested at various points uh, when the war started. Some of those were diehard Nazis. Uh, but others were 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 state were really what you might consider stateless Germans. They hadn't been in Germany for years. Some of them were, were communists, um, and so therefore not uh, in favor of Nazi Germany. So there was a wide uh, mixture uh, of people there. So it was a very unusual bunch, and and this is this is what is going to constitute a, a mixed camp. You're going to have um, Nazis and, and anti-Nazis and Jews in one camp, and that's going to create a, its whole set of problems. And so they arrive in Quebec get on board the train, make the journey uh, to Red Rock, and uh, the story of Camp R uh, really gets underway there. I'm going to turn over to Michelle and see if there's anything he wants to add at, at this point. Thank you. No, I mean, all, all I would say is that, I mean, you can sort of imagine the scene of, you know, based upon the rhetoric in the newspapers at the time, um, the beginning of hostilities in, in Europe, um, you know, the the panic uh, that many individuals felt, um, and again, spurred in sometimes cases by propaganda within the media. And as David had mentioned, you know, you have uh, individuals who are, you know, sent to pick up uh, soldiers who, again, either through volunteer um, um, or had been in the army for a number of years beforehand, you know, expecting to go overseas, they show up, um, not really going overseas, so a little bit of disappointment. Uh, they get to Quebec, and they're being told that these are the, the first prisoners, um, the first, you know, quote, quote, Nazis that, you know, Canada has seen, and they have seen. Um, and yeah, there were individuals uh, within those ranks. I mean, and again, while many of them may not have been necessarily um, military, they certainly did support, um, you know, the ideology of, uh, of, of Nazi Germany and, and Hitler and others. Um, but at the same time, you know, they all of a sudden find, you know, youth as young as 12, individuals in their 80s as they're coming off the, the ship and getting into the trains that are going to come to um, to Red Rock, which again, from Quebec to northern Ontario is a multi-day journey. And, you know, and what they do see as well is, you know, um, you know, and it's hard to get numbers and statistics, as David mentioned, but you have 200 thereabouts of, you know, unwanted, unexpected, potentially Jewish, German, Austrian immigrants 
many of them youth, as David mentioned, you have rabbis, you have individuals um, in addition to this group who had in fact made a name for themselves in Britain as anti-Nazis. Um, uh, I mean, you know, they were part of that that group of expat Germans who were arguing, and even before the war broke out, you know, sounding the alarm of the dangers of what was occurring in the 1930s and the rise of fascism. And all of a sudden, they find themselves on a train in Quebec after a, a boat ride, going on a couple day journey to the middle of nowhere um, in terms of the, the boreal forest. Um, and you can, and it sort of sets the stage. So you can kind of imagine the simmering hostilities behind the scenes of throwing together individuals who ideolo ideologically are, are completely opposed, I mean, dichotomously in terms of, of what's occurring in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by um, soldiers who don't want to be there because that's not what they signed up for. Um, and in a camp that had been hastily constructed from the remnants of a, of a lumber camp that had not been used, uh, and then find themselves basically in 1940 um, in this situation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that was sort of where Ernst, you know, where, where his his compassion sort of focused. And, you know, initially it was that, you know, you have this sort of bungling and incompetence of the way the whole the structure of the tribunal system in britain occurred you know trying to classify these enemy aliens and there was a few italians in britain at the time as well because that would become they but they're not part of the story of campar but you have the, the category a the class a class b class c and you know basically the tribunal was one uh, person with some sort of legal background, a, a retired judge or a justice of the peace or a lawyer or something would sit there, and there, this person, the the enemy alien um, civilian, would be interviewed, and the whatever that person, that tribunal uh, tribune decided uh, was the how they were classified, and some of the uh, the interviews that we we the, the sort of the um, uh, anecdotal stories about how. Uh, those went about um it was very arbitrary and in some cases uh display there's uh, displays of bigotry uh ignorance uh pig-headedness um laziness um just you know um there was one 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 uh individual who was asked um you know that he was uh what he thought of of goebbels uh her uh joseph goebbels and he said well he's he's, he's a genius right very very uh, very creative you know um which which he was he was an evil genius but he was a genius nonetheless and so that that was enough to get him condemned as a sympathizer uh, 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 with nazi germany but he was just answering the question you know what he thought of goebbels the, the, the Trib tribune thought he said goebbels is an idiot well no he wasn't an idiot he was an evil genius um you know there's a difference and so things like that you know there was somebody uh there was a, a jewish person who um tried to escape uh nazi germany and, and was doing their best to to smuggle out their possessions and their valuables so they could you know ha, you know make make a, a go of it uh, wherever they uh, managed to make it to as refugees and of course they'd been caught by the german police and arrested because that was a crime in nazi germany um and of course that the, the um uh, a tribunal thought that this person was a dangerous person and made them a class a right away because they broke the laws of their homeland and so there were some real absurdities going on here. People that were obviously victims of Nazi Germany uh, being lumped in with people who were actually uh, Nazi sympathizers or, or, or members of the Nazi party, depending upon um, where they were picked up by the British authorities. And that documentation doesn't follow to Canada 
till much later. So when the guards of the Fort Gary Horse and the camp staff at Camp R get these prisoners, they don't know what to do with them. Um, as far as they're concerned, they were told these are all dangerous Nazis. You know, um, there's still there's images of paratroopers and sub, you know, you know, evil U-boat commanders who torpedo passenger liners and that sort of thing. And these people are are going to, uh, you know, cut your throat if 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 you if you if you turn your back on them. And then they get this this mixed bunch. You know, they're all civilians. Um, and the, you know the, the younger younger ones or the fit, fitter ones are in a lot of them are enemy merchants seamen, which vary in their their loyalty to the Nazi regime. Um, and so, um, complicating this, of course, Canada um, set up a system. The Geneva Convention at this time doesn't apply to, civil, to civilian internees. If, what, what do you do with civilian uh, enemy? Uh, aliens that you intern and so canada uh, passed a uh, ordering council which applied the geneva convention to these these prisoners by classifying prisoners of war as prisoners of war class one which were actual military personnel taken a prisoner and prisoners of war class two which were civilian internees now for the internees that we're, we're talking about here the ones that were were, were um uh, talking about in terms of the injustice that was done to them, they found this very outrageous. They weren't prisoners of war; they weren't enemies. But it did allow the Canadian government to give the uh, um, the prisoners, uh, the internees, uh, sort of the same rights uh, and protections that prisoners of war normally would get. So it, it did complicate things, but it it it, it showed that. Uh, at least the Canadian government was at, at that level trying to to mitigate things. But what do you do with these these prisoners? Um, the um, uh, almost as soon as as the the prisoners get to the camp, the guards are still treating them as uh, these dangerous enemy aliens. But you start to get letters of protests and petitions and so on, and people coming to the camp. Commandant Lieutenant Colonel Barry, you know, expressing their outrage and their 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 concern over the injustice that has been done to them and th these messages are being passed up to the canadian government who is immediately query querying the british government as to you know what's going on here you said you were sending us dangerous enemy aliens and here we have jewish people rabbis students boys what's going on um and it would take months for this to get sorted out um uh, part of the problem is you know the british were only reluctantly um eventually going to admit that they'd made a mistake because there was even protests in Britain when people realized what went on. Uh, but typical with large bureaucracies, large, large, large organizations, everybody's trying to avoid blame and trying rather than fix the problem. So it took some time for that to come about. And you know, one of the British solutions was just, well, just let them all go in Canada. Um, and the Canadian government was reluctant to do that. Um, you know, we had had a restricted immigration policy uh, because of the, uh, the Great Depression, and they didn't want to add another few thousand um immigrants uh that, that we were were prepared to take and there was a certain amount of bigotry involved in that as well you can trace that to the department of immigration where they weren't that eager to get more jewish immigrants so um this this posed a conundrum so this would drag on uh for months until the camp was closed uh in uh the, towards the end of 19 1941. um so this is the problem that the guards have to face and so you've got a mixed camp nazis people that are clearly nazis or those that are sort of easily led uh, by their, their 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 colleagues and this smaller group 
but still very significant group of people who are anti-Nazi, Jewish, and so on. Um, and that's going to cause problems. There's going to be problems of discipline and order and so on. Um, and and there were, uh, particularly in the early, early months, incidents of harassment uh, in, uh, of the, the Jewish prisoners by the Nazi prisoners, threats and intimidation. You know, they would go out of their way to disrupt uh, Jewish religious services. They would do things to the mess hall to make it unkosher, you know, so that, you know, all these things that were, um, you know, making life difficult, you know, and, and of course the, the diehard Nazis in, in 1940 are still convinced because of course Nazi Germany is largely victorious everywhere it goes, um, that, that Germany was going to win the war and they would, could threaten these, these prisoners and say, well, when, when Germany wins the war, you, you'll, you'll get what's coming to you kind of thing. Um, so it, it caused a lot of problems for uh, the, the people running the camp. But fortunately, um, it, within the camp, they eventually did uh, manage to get a, a semblance of, of order and, and get the camp running uh, in the administration of it, you know, pro, you know, providing the, the food, the heat, the um, opportunities uh, for entertainment for the, for the prisoners. Um, all things that the, the the camp staff had had to deal with. Um, there were um, obviously the, the, there's lots of periods of time where the the prisoners were bored. There were opportunities occasionally to work outside the wire, <clears throat> so they were able to go out into the community, into the region. Often it was involved with cutting pulpwood or firewood. Um, and there was also a number of escape attempts, at least fifteen to sixteen, that the camp guards uncovered or found out about in one way or another. Some uh, three or four of those uh, got a significant distance from the uh, the camp before they, they were um, apprehended and brought back to the camp. One even made it as far as the United States before he was arrested and, and returned. And unfortunately, um, because we still have this atmosphere that, excuse me, we're not sure you know, if these are dangerous Nazis or, or are these the, you know, the good Germans, so to speak, um, two, at least two, uh, there's two uh, escape prisoners that were unfortunately uh, shot by nervous guards when they were apprehending them. So we, we have these types of problems going on. There's the, um, you know, so sometimes, you know, this is the first time can, you know, the, the lessons of the uh, of previous uh, internment and, and dealing with prisoners was sort of, was sort of lost. And, and you know, simple things uh, were messed up when this camp was set up. And it, so there's a lot of lessons learned uh, that are applied to other camps very quickly across the country. For example, um, you know, Lake Superior is a great source of water. So they put the pipe in, in, in for the water intake. And then someone put the outflow for the sewage not very far from the intake valve of the, of the, um, where the water was coming in. So they had a problem. Um, in those days, they still put raw sewage straight into the, into the lake. So um, very, very bad environmentally. But at the time, that was the, sort of the norm. So those kind of things, you know, other things were like the buildings were built too close together, which was a fire hazard. And also a bit of a security hazard because it's harder for the guards to look between the buildings um, easily. So there's a number of issues issues there, but overall they they were resolved as the camp went on, and camp camp life was, um, as far as prison camps go, 
pretty good. So I'm, my voice is, is starting to go. I'll give it over to Michelle here because I've been talking and talking. So, Thank so you. I, I've got to add to Sir David's overview there. I don't know if, uh, the, if we might be want to move on to the next question. Sure. What are the primary themes in this book? What story and stories does this book tell? Well, yeah, I, I think we've covered some of that. But yeah, this is this whole story of internment camp operations in, in Canada um, in terms of you know, Canada receiving from overseas uh, large numbers of uh, prisoners of war and civilian internees and the whole process of housing them and, lo and looking after them and the lessons learned, you know, from the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of mishandling of the tribunal system in Britain to the, uh, the sort of the bureaucratic inertia in Canada to, to resolve the problem and uh, ultimately um uh you know the, the ability to overcome all these these difficulties of setting up a camp uh, and and get it get it operating uh smoothly so i, I think that's sort of what 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 uh, is broadly covered in it there's that whole sense of injustice for the um the prisoners who were wrongly interned um and in their eventual return uh to britain or, or in some cases some of them uh staying in canada as well so also, yeah, if I can add to it, I, I think there's also, it, it's a lesson in the importance of case studies um, in, in many respects as well. I mean, the, you know, it, it's, it, it's a lesson that, you know, you need to be careful to about generalizing about, you know, some aspects of the Second World War, about prisoners of war, the internee experience in Canada, um, you know, notions of the quality of leadership that existed during this period of time. I mean, one thing that Camp R allows in that sort of microcosm kind of case study examination is to kind of pick away at the threads or pick away at some of the assumptions um, that existing histories have uh, about those very items. I think it's also as well that, you know, one of the things that the lessons learned is that, you know, no two camps in Canada, and I think you could apply this elsewhere in North America, but also I think in terms of some of the experiences elsewhere in the world, functioned identically. You know, it, it invariably impacted the experience of individual prisoners as well, the nature of the camps, their experiences, what um, came out of it following in the, the decades of the war, particularly those that were the civilian internees. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's a very much a rupture in life. I mean, uh, again, especially for many of those who, uh, you know, this book doesn't really focus and trace uh, beyond, um, you know, what happened after the war. But you can well imagine that, you know, for many individuals who, you know, during the course of Ernst's interview, and he interviewed a lot of life, interviewed a lot of individuals, many of these people, by the time the, the book came around to being put into manuscript, had since passed away. So, I mean, they had stories following those years. Some uh, left uh, Canada. Some came, uh, they, they, many came back in the in the decades following. Some lived out their lives in various places in Europe. But what they experienced um, as a prisoner of war impacted th their life. I mean, and understanding, you know, what the situation they found themselves in. I mean, particularly those who, uh, you know, had fled to Britain. I mean, they were escaping tyranny. They were escaping oppression. Uh, and then to find themselves uh, in what, you know, ostensibly um, would have been considered a, a safe part of the world as hostilities were occurring in Europe, uh, to find themselves thrown into, um, you know, almost unimaginable situation. I mean, the other thing, too, is, I mean, given the, the multifaceted nature of prisoners of war and internment operations in Canada, I mean, 
this is also a a, a micro uh, um I'm sorry bad can't the word I'm thinking of but almost a case study as well about uh, one could argue about the human condition I mean how individuals react to these circumstances you know I mean Camp R and the story that's told in this book there are examples of some of the the best of you know what humanity has to offer individuals looking out for each other even the you know the 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 reality that many of the prisoners found them found themselves i mean writing letters to say to the canadian government authorities some of these people should not be interned i mean you know these are innocent individuals you know who just for because of where they were um found themselves in this camp but then you see the worst of it too. I mean, you actually see some of the depravity and some of the very, um, you know, evils that you see in the Second World War that are often focused upon in Europe, um, manifesting themselves in in Camp R. I mean, the treatment uh, of individuals, the persecution, the harassment that many individuals who were again were innocent civilians underwent, because again, as has been mentioned a couple times, you know, they found themselves in a closed in environment with individuals who they was, uh, you know, the worst of uh, ideologies that we could ever, you know, unfortunately have experienced as, as, as humanity. I mean, and being subject to it, and being thought as well by many of the individuals that had incarcerated them, that they shared those ideologies. So I mean, that, I think that's also another, you know, important part of the story is, you know, really reflecting an understanding of, you know, and it was, as, as, as Canadians, as David and I are, I mean, that, you know, often stories of the Second World War end in sort of a notion of triumph um, and not often explored or some of the darker parts that, you know, within North America, within Canada, that many individuals did experience as well. I mean, that, this is also part of the story. Um, I, I don't know what else we, all, we want to talk about, but uh, there were I did make some notes about some. There's at least three or four interesting personalities that were. Please, uh, please, of, by all means, I'd be sincerely to grateful. The, the story, yeah, and some they illustrate the, the the diversity of 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 people there. So these are the, sure. some high profile ones. I know uh, there are, there are others, but their their stories aren't as as fully uh, unknown. For example, there was uh, Eugen or Eugen Spear. It was a, a, a Jewish person, a, a Jewish refugee, anti-Nazi refugee who'd escaped from, from Nazi Germany and made it made his way to Britain. And he was a noted um, anti-Nazi activist in uh, in Britain at the time. Um, and he was also uh, a, a supporter or, a, a, depending on how you, you phrase it, a friend of Winston Churchill, who was one of the ones that was rounded up and and, and sent to Camp, Camp R. And he felt that uh, particularly, he's one of the, the ones who, most uh, um, articulately, articulately uh, expressed his out, uh, indigna, ind, indignation over being arrested. And he wrote his memoir, and it was called "The uh, Protecting Power," and it provides lots of details about life life at Camp Camp R. And so he was he was certainly uh, somebody who probably shouldn't have been uh, rounded up and, and sent to Camp R. He was part of that group that was pointing out the evils of fascism and Nazism. Uh, before the war, and he was opposed to appeasement, and so um, he suspected that, that was some of the reason he was routed up because the the, the tribunals, uh, you know, they were they were just staffed with uh, various types of people who had legal background. Some of them uh, would have been supporters of Chamberlain and, and opponents of Churchill. So um, a bit of a uh, of a unfortunate situation there for him. And there was Doctor Gustav uh, Lachman. He was a noted aircraft engineer. Uh, he had uh, been involved in the development of the Harrow 
and the Hamden and the Halifax bombers. So three types of bombers that were used by the Allied forces at various points in the war. Um, uh, so, uh, but his crime was that he had been born in Germany. Uh, and he served in the German Air Force in the First World War. And then he emigrated uh, to uh, Great Britain, married a British woman, but never took out uh, British citizenship, never became a British subject. Uh, but he was a leading aeronautical engineer, and he had been work working for in the aeronautical industry in Britain, and he had the patent for slotted wings. Um, and he was very essential to the, the war effort. But being a German, they didn't think that that uh, was... Uh, uh, a, that they thought that was a security risk, and that he shouldn't be working in the industry, and he should be rounded up and and, and sent to Canada. Um, so, uh, you know, something you know, that, there's another sort of absurdity here: somebody who's deliberately helping the Allied war effort fight Nazi Germany, and he's considered just because he's a German that he's he's a threat. Then, on the other hand, there's Dr. Ernst. Uh, his nickname was Putzi Hofstangel. Um, he was a one-time Nazi. He's a, some people consider him an ambivalent Nazi. He was sort of a Nazi of convenience. Um, but he was also considered a close confidant of Hitler. Uh, and he was involved with publicity uh, for the Nazis in the early years of the Nazi party. But he fell out of favor in 1933 uh, and eventually became a refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, he was a noted socialite. Uh, and he was noted for playing the piano and using that to help calm Hitler in some of the early years when, when Hitler would, would uh, get quite worked up. Um, he was also a graduate of Harvard University and a friend of the Roosevelt family. Now, he's probably someone who rightly was interned. He was very much involved with the Nazi party. He hadn't really repudiated them. He just ran from them. Um, and so he thought that he was much more influential and... Uh, thought that his connect Roosevelt connections and so on would would spare him from internment, but uh, he was, I think, one of the ones rightly interned. Another one that's sort of more ambivalent as well, very important to the running of Camp R, was Captain Oscar Scharf. He was a merchant captain, merchant ship captain, um, and he was not a Nazi supporter, but he was a German. He was employed in the German Merchant Marine, um, and he uh, was well known by. Uh, People in Nazi Germany, and he was well respected in the merchant uh, marine world. Um, and he commanded the uh, the passenger liner Europa, Europa, which was was a luxury liner. Um, but because he was not a diehard Nazi, he eventually lost that position and was just commanding a a smaller uh, vessel, the Alster, uh, which is running supplies. Was, even though it's a civilian merchant vessel, running supplies for the German forces in the invasion of Norway in 1940, particularly he was running them up to Narvik, um, and he was captured, um, and he was obviously interned because he's, you know, an enemy merchant seaman, and he's working for the enemy, and rightly so, but he was a very diplomatic person, a very strong leader, a good organizer, um, and he was very much able at various points through his internment, he took leadership, and at Camp R, he became the camp leader. And he was able to help diplomatically smooth over a lot of these problems that you had uh, with prisoners. And um, it was said that on the trip over from Britain to Quebec on the Duchess of York, there was a, a point in which some of the diehard Nazis felt that they could overpower the ship's crew and their guards and take over the ship. And it's Scharf who was credited with talking them down. 
um, so that they didn't actually do that. So there was this mixed message, right? We've talked about there's all these unjustly interned people that are rightly a lot of the focus of our, our book. But there was this diehard Nazi group that was very much this. There was very much a danger, dangerous, there very much were some dangerous enemies on uh, in the in the group. And Scharf was one of the ones who helped um, prevent them from uh, doing more mischief at the camp than they might otherwise have done. So you can see, so it's, it's quite the, quite the mixture. And Michelle mentioned, you know, the, what happened to the prisoners after. We don't we don't talk about that much in the book, but some of them did go on and serve with the British for armed forces. You know, there was various units of Jewish um, soldiers created, and some of them had been at Camp Har. Some of the younger younger ones. Um, but others go on to co continue to contribute to the war effort uh, in the sciences and and, and so on. Um, some of them are released in Canada and eventually uh, immigrate great to Canada. So um, the only ones that really stay uh, in, in Canada are the ones who are, are definitely um, the pro-Nazi ones and the, the enemy merchants seamen, no matter wh whether they're Nazi or or, or not, they were were considered legitimate um, prisoners, and uh, they they uh, become part of the larger story of prisoner war and internment, uh, prisoner of prisoners of war and internment in Canada, and, and really they they just blend in into the background. So, so the the, the story of Camp Honor really then comes to an end. Um, you know, twenty third of October, nineteen forty one. It took until the end of nineteen forty to get this whole thing sorted out with, you know, these, these prisoners at Camp Bar, not all of them should be here. And through the early months of 1941, prisoners are slowly in, in bunches uh, transferred to other camps where they're sorted out. And eventually some of them are repatriated to Britain and others to, to, their, um, to camps where they would spend the rest of the war. Excuse me. And so, yeah, at the end, by the end, there's only a few hundred, and the last of them get on board a train, go to another camp. The guards sort of basically <laughs> close the gate, lock it on the 23rd of October, and uh, uh, the story of Camp R comes to an end, except for the fact that the um, the buildings and, and uh, sundry things left at the camp are sold by the government as surplus. Um, and... Uh, um, that's sort of sort of the end of the story so um i'm not sure what else you want to know michelle do you have anything you want to add i've been doing a lot of talking so yeah i mean I, I would just say i mean even the the end of camp R shows some of the inequality and um you know and some of the lessons that weren't learned i mean one of the things that you know the book establishes is that you know, the experiences at Camp R did have a profound influence across North America on the structure and nature of prisoners of war camps and internment camps and the idea of mixed camps and, um, you know, who should be lodged together, etc. So, I mean, there, there are lessons learned in, in that sense, but there's also lessons that weren't learned. I mean, the inequality of treatment of, you know, those that were transferred afterwards or, or repatriated um, during the war, following the war, um, there's, a, there's a, a lot of differences. 
I mean, you have some individuals based upon skill or identified skill, you know, find themselves, you know, providing um, support if they had, you know, a, a scientific or engineering background. Many individuals found themselves, uh, even those who were identified as not being, um, you know, ideologically in line with the with the, the Nazi regime, um, still found themselves spending the war in internment camps elsewhere in Canada, particularly in Western Canada, um, particularly in some of those youth and older individuals. Um, but then you have some like Hufstegel who, I mean, when Campar closes because of his connections to the Roosevelt's, spends the rest of the war in the United States. I mean, he gets transferred there and finds himself uh, being able to work within social circles, you know, from his Harvard days. I mean, so again, there's also that 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 part of the you know the experience of what those who were deemed to be prisoners of war what they experienced within the camps. Uh, but again, that in, the inequitable treatment of even after everything that was learned in the year that Camp R was operating, you still have that outcome. You know, and again, it goes back to that you know element that you know doesn't necessarily articulated in the book, but it's it's one of the things that sort of you think about after the book and and wonder. You know those individuals and you know what they experience based upon either um you know where they happen to be their rel religious um inclinations who politically um you know that may may have been at odds uh, odds are and, and i'm referencing those who were were anti-nazi i mean they were and, and well-established anti-nazi still found themselves after the camp closed in camps were those that were on the record well established and you know there there is no ambivalence but the fact that they were still supporters of of nazism and what was occurring in europe you know spent the rest of the war in relative luxury in the united states and elsewhere um you know i, I think it says a lot as well about you know individuals and um decision making during this time can you kindly tell us about the Arandora Star Vessel. Can you tell the story of this tragedy? Um, yeah, it's not a direct, um, uh, directly related to Camp R, but it, it 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 occurs around the same time as the the, the voyage of the Duchess of York. Um, yeah, the Andoria Star was one of three vessels that left Britain uh, within a, a, a few days, a few weeks of each other, carrying uh, prisoners of war and internees. Um, in this case, the Andorra Star had uh, both uh, German uh, POWs, uh, Italian, uh, and uh, German uh, enemy aliens um, on board. And uh, to try to make a, a long story short, it, it the, the voyage of it across the ocean, they were trying to make it out that these were not, this was not an Allied troop ship, this was not an allied uh, a ship involved this was a uh civilian in, internees and prisoners of war and the ship wasn't uh properly sort of uh camouflaged they had you know lights on and that sort of thing and it was eventually torpedoed by the germans um and uh, with a large loss of life um it was over the ship was over over full capacity um and there was it was it caused a big controversy and so it was um one of the sort of the catalysts that sort of brought an end to the shipping of um, enemy aliens out of Britain um, because it, it put these civilians um, at risk uh, in a war zone where the, there was no no real need uh, for that. Um, I, I, the name escapes right now, but there was also a ship that was bound for Australia. I just can't remember the name of it. Denera. So, so, uh, start with a D. 
um, where the conditions were particularly horrific. Uh, and that was another case that helped uh, bring this to an end. But in the meantime, you've got these people that have arrived in Canada and South Africa and Australia, and they have to be uh, sorted and repatriated. And, and um, you know, this is the story of Camp R, the injustice that, that went on there uh, as a result of this. Um, you know, their, their general treatment at Camp R was good. Right. There was, we're not talking about any injustice there. It's just the fact that these people shouldn't have been interned, arrested, and then deported uh, to Canada uh, under the pretext that they were dangerous. So, yeah, so the Andor Andoria Star uh, was a uh, very tragic incident. So um, this it's only tangentially related uh, to Camp R because of the fact that it's enemy aliens that were amongst the victims of that that, that sinking. So and, and it, it did cause that controversy because the Germans didn't believe you know couldn't believe that this was not some sort of trick and this was in fact an allied troop ship or something like that um and so it, it just showed some uh, for with so the stupidity of, of the whole the whole affair if you want to be blunt about it so um is there anything else that you, you wanted to know about sure how did inmates who were interned cope with boredom depression and other emotions during their time in detainment well there was there's no real there's nothing in terms of um, you know, uh, psychological treatment or met but there was there was medical staff at the camp that could deal deal with them but most of them uh th that was one of the challenges that the, the inmates and the camp staff faced was how to find appropriate recreational activities and so and how do you then source uh, the materials for that. If you're going to do arts and crafts, where do you get the materials from, right? You know, there's we're in a, in, in a wartime situation, everything's rationed, um, you know, so you have to get art supplies. Um, you know, sports gear, that kind of stuff has to has to be acquired. So, so yeah, so the, the inmates, like you see it in a lot of the prison camps across Canada, yeah, they, they, they set up clubs, they they engage in, in artwork. They, um, you know, some of the, they, in some cases, they, the uh, schools are set up, you know, that teach, you know, high school or university level uh, classes so that the, 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 they can have the intellectual stimulation and, and, and potentially further themselves uh, later on in life. Um, sporting activities of all sorts. That's why I think remember we were casually talking uh, previously. You wondered what the 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 image on the front of the, the book was. It's sort of these these prisoners are forming a pyramid. So this is you know this is and it's very near the barbed wire. So it looks like they could be using it to to jump over and and escape. But um, it, it's part of the the whole athletic program that the prisoners set up for themselves. They would put on athletic displays and competitions and. And place play various sports amongst themselves, you know, uh, football, you know, soccer, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, so although that picture on the front of the cover looks like, oh, well, this is like they're setting themselves up to escape. Uh, as the, those who did escape found, there's not a lot of not not it's not easy to get away from Red Rock in 1940. Um, if the moose, if the mosquitoes and bears don't get you, the moose will, because the Germans tended to be scared of moose for some reason. Uh, the, the big antlers and and so on seem to intimidate them. Um, and the and worse than the mosquitoes is the black flies. And so there's large stretches of wilderness. Um, and even though there are some farms and so on in, in the area of vicinity of Red Rock and, and moving closer towards what is now Thunder Bay, the, the cities of Port Arthur and Fort William, there's not a lot that, uh, um, to do. Some of them potentially, I suppose, could hop a train. That's what's something that happens with some of the prisoners of war 
escape from Angler, which is an actual prisoner of war camp set up farther up the shore. Um, but, um, there, you know, it's not an easy thing to get away. So once that becomes apparent to the prisoners, a lot of them resign themselves to, you know, life in the camp and, and find ways to entertain themselves. Um, you know, musical instruments and, and yeah, putting on uh, building orchestras and, and bands so they can play music for themselves, um, that sort of thing. Um, they, you know, uh, there was occasionally, as I mentioned, the opportunity to work outside the camp. Uh, sometimes they uh, prisoners would work for lumber companies cutting pulpwood, uh, but also there's a need to get firewood and things like that for the for the camp as well. So uh, that was one way. You know, it, it sounds odd, but work was a way of, of relieving the boredom as well. And that's that was the thing though that they did. One of the things they commented on is was the, the boredom that they faced. You know, you've got all this time on your hands, and and you know there is libraries there to read read books. You know, they did get books brought in and donated, um, but you can only read the same books so many times, right? And you have to constantly get new books. So there's a challenge to keeping the, the prisoners entertained. Shell, you want, uh, want to add anything? I've been talking again, no, but. I mean, I think in addition to that, too, um, or I mean, you know, another important issue uh, for um, inmates of the camp, um, and also actually, to be honest, uh, the military administration was the matter of work, you know, both what was considered unpaid mandatory fatigue and voluntary paid work. So, I mean, it, it, in addition to, you know, time that they had leisure in terms of activities, I mean, the performance of what's called fatigue work was a daily task and inmates generally in all camps um, regardless of where they were, were confronted uh, by this, and it was sort of dreaded by every prisoner. I mean, unpaid mandatory fatigue work um, included things uh, like camp maintenance, road repairs, burying garbage, cutting and chopping firewood, and similar um, labor. I mean, this is something that internees were obliged to perform uh, under Article 34 of the of the Geneva Convention. Um, you know, it was universally disliked. I mean, so that, I mean, that's a, a pretty, pretty good conclusion. Um, you know, and in some cases, many of those that were merchant seamen or civilians, I mean, they were used to getting paid uh, for their labor. So they actually rejected and resented this aspect of camp life. I mean, because again, these are folks that were there not because they had done something wrong, but because they had found themselves in the wrong place at the right time. So being essentially rupturally taken away from um, you know what they were trained to do and find themselves doing unpaid work in terms of what they often thought was uh, menial for the upkeep uh, of the camp. I mean, in particular, I mean, you can imagine as well, because one thing we haven't mentioned in Camp R, there's actually a number of actually Bolshevik sailors as well. So you yeah. can imagine just the difference between fascism and communism. And so then you have a bunch of Bolshevik sailor, uh, sailors in Camp R. And I mean, this idea of working for no pay for capitalists, I mean, you know, also under uh, underscored some of their own ideological um, uh, concepts of, of North America. So in addition to that, you also had voluntary paid work. And this is something that actually became really controversial because it was in high demand but it was rarely available in Camp R. I mean, this is something later camps uh, becomes quite frequent because again, there was the the want of, of money and funds to buy necessities such as tobacco, soup, toothpaste, toothbrushes, razor blades, hygiene products. But also, I mean, there was a, a an official and unofficial market for chocolates and candies and cookies and others with residents in the area for those that were, were at Camp R. But you could only access it if you had funds. Because for those when they were round, rounded up and sent on the ships, I mean, they were stripped of their cash. 
So all of a sudden they find themselves in, you know, being dangled in front of, you know, the opportunity for some creature comforts, um, but you needed to have volunteered paid work. And it got so bad, in fact, that there was actually protests um, and also letter writing campaigns, um, not just by the prisoners, but also residents and citizens in the town of Red Rock in saying that, you know, this is something that needs to be explored, something that needed to be um, available um, and actually contravened, um, you know, Geneva Convention and other um, rules surrounding prisoners. So so in addition to the leisure activities, there was also um, a lot of information uh, from people who were interviewed, who were in the camp. Uh, people um, and also as well from the documentary uh, documented record where I mean they wanted voluntary paid labor as a means of you know going through the day doing something that they believe was worthwhile but also that they could benefit from uh, in terms of some of the the purchases that could be made how does your book recontextualize the legacy of Canadian Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King I'm going to turn that one over to Michelle I don't have a lot of good things to say about Mackenzie King. So, well, I mean, I, I think it it recontextualized, but it also calls into question. I mean, and there's some. So, one of the conclusions we reach um, in the book, which David and I have actually reassessed uh, in the last number of years. I mean, often the the narrative um, associated with this is that the British government, as David talked about at the very beginning, kind of um, the Canadian government unwittingly. Uh, was told that they were taking on soldiers and, you know, prisoners of war that were, you know, we used the phrase, are Nazis and, and, and dangerous uh, enemies, you know, and that they were duped by the British. And that then, then they found themselves, um, you know, when, when they arrived at the camps uh, and the guards um, with, you know, these youth, uh, elderly individuals and civilian internees. I mean, in a lot of the existing literature, I mean, that that is kind of the focus and how, you know, Mackenzie King is contextualized. I mean, um, you know, add in, you know, a healthy dose of, um, uh, you know, looking at the past and, you know, questions about Mackenzie King's dedication to, uh, you know, the Second World War, dedication uh, to, you know, uh, Britain, the Commonwealth, um, you know, British imperialism, etc. Um, but the, one of the big, but one of the big narratives, though, was the fact that Canada was duped. You know, one of the things um, that, and that, that's, you know, the general line um, that the book takes um, and that shock and surprise uh, of who arrived. Um, it fits within a narrative of looking at, you know, British conceptions of former colonies, um, British conceptions in terms of Canada's place uh, leading up to and in the early years um, of the Second World War. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, other works that focus upon that from a military strategy and the British views of Canadian leadership uh, to even the role that Canada, um, you know, had would could play uh, in the early years of the war supporting uh, the, the conflict. But, you know, in recent years, David and I, you know, in some subsequent research and some work we've been we've been looking at, particularly, um, you know, this is a, a book about the story of the camp uh, and the story of those that were interned. You know, we've uh, recently been doing work on um, what's available on the story of the soldiers, particularly the Fort Gary horse and that first group who picked up the, uh, the prisoners. You know, it, what we've been led to believe is that, you know, the existing narrative isn't actually entirely accurate. I mean, there's a lot of contradictions within the existing narrative. Uh, uh, even within the Canadian government, um, even between different ministries and different offices, literally, uh, you know, a walk across the street from each other in Ottawa, uh, in terms of the the nature of 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 who of who was on these boats, um, the um, the number, even uh, the ages. 
you know, the, the background of them. Um, but it is clear, though, from, you know, soldiers' stories, particularly sets of interviews that David and I uh, were have been able to uh, access, uh, found in the Fort Garry Horse Museum um, in, in Winnipeg. A series of interviews were done in the late 60s and 70s, and this is before a lot of the memoirs and manuscripts and the archival material became available. And, I mean, so you can argue that there is a bit of uh, potentially of reimagining history in the couple decades since the end of the, the Second World War and their experiences in Red Rock. But one of the things that's clear in those um, uh, soldiers um, who were sent to Quebec to pick up the, um, the the first group at Red Rock and came back to Red Rock and for the first period of time were the guards, uh, they knew before they went who they were picking up. Not the individuals, not necessarily the 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 entire scope of it, but they knew that they were civilian internees. I mean, so it begs the question, you know, the narrative that the Canadian government at the time played about being caught unawares by the British. Well, they did know. I mean, they, they were able to inform the officers, uh, which then filtered down to the, the rank and file who were on the trains, uh, you know, going to Quebec, who it was that they were picking up. I mean, it, it also, uh, I think, reveals a little bit about, you know, some of the motivation and the, um, you know, the rhetoric that the media played at the time. So at the same time, you can imagine there's, you know, in increasingly evidence that who was on these ships was known particularly at least enough in terms of the soldiers going to pick them up. But at the same time, if you were to look at the major daily newspapers and regional papers in Quebec and across Canada, they were still arguing the line of, you know, these ships are about to arrive and Canadians were about to see the, for their firsthand the first Nazis of the war. Um, and that kind of propaganda was at play. So, I mean, it's interesting. There's a juxtaposition in terms of, you know, what's publicly being said to ramp up patriotism, ramp up volunteering efforts uh, for those to go fight overseas. Then you have the soldiers' experiences and what they know leading in. But then you also have the government line in which they're towing, uh, particularly the King government um, and what they're saying publicly, um, but also behind the scenes. You know, the the in some cases, lack of accuracy of the information that they were working with um, and trying to uh, come to grips with it. But, uh, David, I mean, is there... yeah, so, yeah, the, the point that, that what the, the, the newspaper coverage and stuff where we were talking about, they would talk about, yes, because there were actual prisoners of war on some of these uh, on the Duchess of York. But they that was a small number, small portion of the actual people that were on board it. And in those same newspaper articles, they talk about, yeah, there were, there were some civilian internees, some who might have been, in, and actually they say that some of them might have been incorrectly uh, interned and shipped, but there's these 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 Nazis. So, like, they're, they're sort of blended into the background and, and, and like, sort of smoothed over. You've got, from the very beginning, understanding that, that this is not... Uh, exactly what the British had told them. It's not exactly you know the Canadian High Commission in 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 London wasn't um, uh, passing on accurate information. They weren't in, inquiring um, uh, and finding out what exactly was going on. And so yeah, so the Canadian government takes um, uh, some of the blame here as well. And that's that's where I think our reframing of Mackenzie King's government uh, changes. You know, there's the the existing literature like Paula Draper and, and Eric Koch and others who've written about this intern internee experience rightly focus some a lot of criticism at the Canadian government but that's a lot of it has to do with the situation after the prisoners arrive where the Canadian government the bureaucracy the inertia the reluctance to make a decision the passing of the buck that goes on but you know the book we, we very clearly highlight um 
you know the the, the situation beforehand and the, and the fact that the british knew and, and depending which part of the british government knew and didn't know that they were sending which type of people they were sending that, the, that it was it was all very hastily it was a it was a a fiasco from the from the get-go and so the british government deserves a fair bit of, of criticism as well and so but even from the very beginning once the canadian government on july 1st the canadian government if nothing else knew that they had prisoners that they shouldn't have had but they they they, they were refu- they refused to take any 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 action they kept deferring kept asking the british for more information uh and not willing to make a decision uh, on on you know the fact that you can spear shouldn't have been there and others shouldn't have been there and um yeah so i think it it, it puts that there it, it it's something that i've encountered in in, in with my, my my phd studies looking at canadian foreign policy towards finland uh at this time and and there's the amount of um information and uh correspondence that officials in the canadian government had to deal with this is the the, the you know there if you had a had a bar a bar uh bar graph the curve learning curve is going up pretty exponentially for the people in the department of external affairs and the department of national defense and and, and so on and the juggling this information so they're getting this information that says yeah we're getting prisoners but they're not actually querying and get and pushing back and saying, well, what prisoners are we getting? We need detailed information. They're just accepting that we're getting dangerous enemy aliens. And so it shows a bit of naivety or or um, the fact that they're overwhelmed as well. So I, I think uh, there's a lot of things that you can take out of this this time period. And Camp R points to some, some of these things, uh, these threads that you see. Um, so um, that's about it for, that I have on that. What does your research teach us about inter-Dominion relations in the British Empire during World War II? Um, I think in many ways, some ways it reinforces what a lot of other, like I said, a lot of, a lot of other scholars are showing. Yeah, we've got the, the British Commonwealth, um, the British Empire in Canada is still, you know, it's part of the British Commonwealth. It's a self-governing uh, it, it's a self-governing dominion. It's it, it, since the Statute of Westminster, it's been fully independent. Uh, you know, the Statute of Westminster in 1931. Um, but there's still, you know, Canada has limited diplomatic uh, ex- uh, resources in terms of consulates and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, it, you know, our, the amount of money that was spent by Canada on the Department of External Affairs and the staffing of it was, although it's growing at this exponentially at this point, um, they're they're building, you know, really starting from square one and having to build it up, and so you've got all these civil servants, uh, diplomatic staff that have to, you know, get up to speed and 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 manage the situation. And this this the situation with the prisoners for Camp R is just another. Uh, one example of that, where you know you've got a whole bunch of other crises going on in the world, and Britain is asking us to take some some dangerous enemy off our hands. And and any other time, there would have been a lot of a lot of queries, a lot of uh, probing. And here it, it's there's there's some uh, some back and forth between Canada House in 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 London and the Dominion's office or the <clears throat> um, other uh, departments of the of the British government, and we eventually wind up with people that shouldn't have been sent uh, to Canada. And so I think um, it shows that, that that Canada is developing that that um, that diplomatic network, the, the skills that were necessary uh, for that 
you know, uh, that, that are going to develop into that period uh, in the 1940s and 1950s when Canadian diplomacy, which sometimes is described as the golden age, um, that's building up here. And, and, and you're seeing uh, those lines of communication. You know, the, the Canada is very much still part of the British Commonwealth, but it's also striking out on its own and um, taking its own tack in the world, uh, its own perspective in the world. And that can be seen here as well. Um, so, Michelle? Uh, nothing to add. Okay. How can non-Canadians grow and benefit from this work? How can listeners and readers who are not students of Canadian history or specialists in Canadian foreign policy benefit and grow from engagement with this study? Michelle, how about you go first? Yeah, I mean... I'm sure every author says this, but I mean, the, the book was written in an in an accessible fashion. Right. So, I mean, there is enough context provided, um, particularly in the introductory areas, where someone who's not familiar um, with Canadian history per se, uh, but does have a, a familiarity with, uh, you know, the, the history of the Second World War or, or global history, uh, particularly sort of Western history at the, at the time, European history, um, I think will find uh, a lot of threads that will be familiar um, uh, within it. Um, you know, even those that may not have a sort of unbinding love of, of Canadian history, I think we'll find this, um, this, this study interesting uh, for a lot of the things we've already talked about. Um, but I mean, that experience of individuals, um, the experience of the, of what it means um, in international conflicts uh, to for civilians, um, how governments um, react uh, to situations uh, surrounding conflicts. Um, and I think as well, too, where as a case study, I mean, it also shows, um, you know, how broad generalizations and anything uh, when we're looking at the past need to be treated with um, a bit of suspect. That when you actually start to look at the particulars of any situation, any part of the world, um, you know, you find that there's there's variance uh, of that experience, particularly when you're thinking about individuals and that human experience. Um, you know, so I mean, yes, it's it's about Canada. Yes, it's about actually one could argue a fairly remote part of Canada, particularly in the in the 19, 1940. Um, but I mean, it is, uh, I think, in many ways, a quintessential study uh, of an important aspect of the Second World War. I mean, every country, regardless, you know, had prisoners of war and internment camps. Uh, you know, and I mean, and these are, are places that, you know, the narrative, um, particularly during the war, but in the decades since the war, you know, has been shaped often by preconceptions, uh, by generalizations, um, by even in terms of remnants of the media at the time, um, or, you know, individuals trying to fill holes in, in gaps of collective memory. Um, so, I mean, the history of Camp R, I mean, in, in many ways is that kind of story that I think will appeal to, you know, your your listeners in that sense. I mean, it's a remarkable story when you think about, um, you know, possibly one of the most remotest places you can you can imagine for many individuals um, in North America at the time, um, comparatively, um, where you find, uh, you know, uh, over a thousand individuals from Europe um, interned, um, a cross-section of folks with experiences from continental Europe and Britain um, in arguably, you know, one of the most devastating, uh, you know, uh, conflicts uh, of the 20th century. Um, but it's also uh, a story that has, I think, an appeal as well, 
because, um, and I don't mean this in a, in a macabre sense, but it's also a story that reveals some of the worst, um, you know, of of human history in the 20th century. And again, we have, you know, and again, not to, to downplay or to, you know, suggest, you know, you know, we shouldn't be talking about some of the horrors that occurred in continental Europe and the Pacific and elsewhere. Um, but in some ways, there's there's a much more subtle. Uh, type of lesson as well to be learned by what individuals are capable of. I mean, thinking, Ari, about your previous question about, you know, what this reveals about Mackenzie King or the Canadian government or, you know, the, the British colonial, um, you know, project. I mean, that is what Camp R is about. I mean, you have, um, you know, questions about what authorities knew or what they chose to ignore. You know, at the same type time, you have almost a trope that the Second World War, um, you know, was a fight for democracy and freedom and for, you know, citizens of the world, um, which, again, all of that is just as accurately true. But then you have the example of Camp R and, and other situations where, you know, individuals are essentially stripped of their identity. I mean, they have an identity imposed upon them that in some cases is as abhorrent to them. And in fact, they had spent most of their lives or their adult lives, in some cases in their youth, fighting against, you know, at you know peril of their own um, health. And then they have an, you know, a notion of identity imposed upon them that begins to define them in, in you know, in, and then shipped to another part of the world. I mean, you know, that's a story that I think everyone needs to be aware of because, and again, this is conjecture, but I mean, imagine you you find yourself as a, you know, a late teen or someone in the early 20s who happens to be of German descent, you know, again, minding your own business and trying to make do in Britain um, in 1939, 1940. And then you find yourself all of a sudden uprooted and sent to a, a part of the world you have never, never been um, because you have individuals who now claim that you are something you are not. And again, you know, that's just an example of those that were innocent civilians. I mean, on the flip side, I mean, you have the the lessons that we talked about earlier where individuals who, you know, I mean, aren't the the best known, say, or the most notorious, that's the word I'll use, in terms of those that were, you know, the coterie surrounding Hitler uh, once the war broke out. But you have individuals who are part of the rise of fascism and the Nazi party uh, from 36 onwards, um, Hofstegel being one of them, who, I mean, were in charge of propaganda. They were in charge of the rhetoric. They were essentially, you know, part of the machine that, you know, led to the, the horrors and the travesties that, that would occur. Yet they find themselves, um, you know, being treated um, the same in many cases of, you know, uh, innocent um, and civilians. But also, as we talked about earlier, I mean, you know, they, you know, essentially get off. I mean, I mean, there there is no repercussions for them. They do not face the trials in terms of Nuremberg. They do not, you know, face in terms of a lot of the, the, the things that occur, uh, and rightly so, following the Second World War. You know, many of them live very comfortably, you know, throughout the war in the United States or find themselves because they're deemed to be useful. To the, to the allies or to the British government afterwards, even many of them find themselves back in Britain because, again, they're deemed useful. So they, you know, escape um, any type of, um, uh, uh, you know, punishment or any type of, you know, being called to their uh, because of their actions. So, I mean, that's that's what I would add, too. I think that's where the, the is one of the importances of this work and other types of works that have been done um, uh, are. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this project? What have you researched and worked on subsequently? Well, we've worked on a lot, haven't we, Michelle? 
uh, we're we're always going to continue uh, working on researching the POW experience in Canada, particularly. We're probably going to be eventually looking at the the other camps along the shores of Lake Superior, the one in Angular and the one at Nays. But those are, are a future project. We, we just recently, as Michelle said, we were working on a paper about the uh, experience of the guards and their reaction to, to the prisoners. Hopefully that will be uh, published in the next year or so. Um, we're also moving on to uh, look at... Um, uh, a completely different different subject area. We we got a social sciences and humanities research council grant, insight development grant to research uh, the Martin incident, espionage, uh, and the image of Canada, and and various forgotten lessons uh, associated with that. Um, we're collaborating on that with a, a friend of ours, a colleague of ours from the University of Oulu in Finland. That's where I did my PhD, and and Michelle has connections there as well. So we're looking at. Uh, it's it started looking at by looking at a a a at least in the, in the English language world a little known uh, espionage case where a um, there was a Soviet spy ring in Helsinki in nineteen December nineteen thirty three that was uncovered by Finnish police and in the process uh, they discovered that a number of the uh, agents that were that they arrested had Canadian passports. They were genuine Canadian passports, but had been fraudulently obtained. So they had used false documents to get them and pretend that they were somebody else. Um, and the, the at the center of it was uh, someone who went by the alias of Mary Martin. Uh, and it, she, she uh, sort of forms the uh, the center of our story. And she was actually uh, Mary Emma Schul. She was actually a, a Latvian uh, who was working for the uh, the Soviets, uh, running a, a spy network in Helsinki. And as our, we do this research, we're uncovering uh, a network of spies that stretches from Canada, the United States, to Britain, to France, Finland, and elsewhere. And so uh, our research is going to sort of uncover the, the network uh, of this spy ring and what, that, what the implications of that are for, for Canadian uh, uh, foreign policy and, and the image of Canada abroad, particularly because it, it concerns the, the fraudulent use of Canadian passports. So hopefully that um, uh, we'll be able to continue that. We, we've got the grant into uh, 2024 and we'll be paying a visit to, to Finland to do some research and, and have a... Uh, a collaborative uh, workshop with uh, others who are, are studying this, uh, similar types of fields on internet, uh, uh, national security and espionage and that sort of thing. And hopefully uh, out of this will come some, some publications. We, who knows? Uh, some articles, uh, maybe a few book, maybe a book or something. But uh, that remains to be seen. There's still a lot more research to do, but it's certainly interesting and challenging. And, and that this, this network that we're finding um, it, it spins out and, you know, usually the story of Canadian espionage activities in Canada by the Soviets sort of begins around the Gazenko affair in 1945. Um, so that places Soviet spy, spies operating in Canada in the 1940s. Well, our research pushes that back um, based on the documentation that we've been able to find to at least in 1924 um, and that this has ramifications <laughs> that lead up to the Gazenko um, uh, exposures and the 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 so-called atomic spies and others. So we'll see how it goes. It's 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 been fun so far. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun doing it. I'm sure. Uh, I don't know, but I think Michelle is as well. And uh, we got to collaborate with a, a number of uh, very interesting people who are, are are working in this field. It takes us away from uh, prisoners of war specifically, although that's a national national security uh, type issue as well. So it, we're just branching out. Uh, a little bit because uh, 
various aspects of our research. We've both been uh, very interested in, uh, because of Northwestern Ontario, uh, Northwestern Ontario has a large number of Finnish immigrants, uh, Finnish Canadian history. Uh, and so this is sort of a, a branch into that as well. So Michelle, I don't know if you want to add anything there. No, I think that covers it all. I mean, I think, you know, I think the thread of, I mean, you know, my background is, um, you know, primarily in early 20th century, um, you know, Canadian historian. So a lot of the work that I had previously done focused on labor, um, communists within North America. So some of my earlier books um, really focus upon, you know, syndicalists, that type of thing and, and transnational movements. Um, so, I mean, the, the the connection with, you know, the little Third Reich and Lake Superior is, I mean, in addition to that national security, I think it's also challenging, um, you know, existing narratives, uh, trying to understand a little bit about, um, you know, why we make the assumptions. I mean, you know, often a lot of a, a lot of work focused upon international espionage, uh, you know, tends to sort of pick up steam, you know, with the Cold War. I mean, we think of those, you know, those classic movies and you know other types of things where, I mean, you have, you know, the uh, the, the Russian spies, uh, you know, following the end of the the Second World War type of thing. Uh, you know, one of the things that you know in, it intrigued myself and David and others on this is that you know what we're beginning to you know pull the the um, you know, like we're beginning to reveal, you know, working with, uh, you know, collaborators around the world is that, you know, what occurs following the Second World War actually shouldn't be that much of a surprise. I mean, the apparatus and, you know, what existed was very much, you know, operating in the 1920s and 30s. And, you know, some of the many of the famous examples that we have uh, in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, in fact, those folks were groomed or trained or indoctrinated by some of the individuals operating in the 20s and 30s. So, I mean, so that's where, I mean, kind of where we're, at least the work that David and I are doing is kind of going on, but it does tie into, you know, not only our previous works that we've done independently uh, in various areas, um, but also, I mean, that thread of, you know, really kind of taking a hard look at the existing narratives, um, trying to understand from, uh, you know, definitely from a, a social history, but marrying social, political, and military history to get a, a better picture uh, of things that, you know, have largely gone um, neglected or not discussed so thank you for sharing this your project sounds absolutely marvelous and i wish you the very best of luck uh there's so much to learn and to glean from the work you're engaged in well thanks ari i mean this was uh this was great i mean it's a uh, i think you know uh, we don't get very i think folks don't very often get a chance to talk about something that you know was about a decade ago and that mm -hmm. they're Still interest in it and then there's a residence of you know if it's importance and what it can share so uh, you know i really appreciate the opportunity absolutely i mean your book is is still relevant and it's still interesting and yeah. i think it's just as meaningful in the year 2023 as it ever was or ever would have been yeah we were it was on the uh Canada's history uh, top ten best uh, sellers list for a while as well. So, so we're quite uh, quite pleased that other people are finding the story interesting. And and this is a um, to, to loop back to Ernst Zimmerman, Doctor Zimmerman. It, it it's a good um, quote. It's a good sort of epitaph for him and and the work that he did, the number of students that he helped over the years. And the fact that he's got this wonderful book that we helped bring to fruition. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm honored as well. So thank you. I'm so honored. Thank you. As, as we end today, 
I am your host on the New Books and History channel on the New Books Network podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. David Ratz and Dr. Michel Beaulieu. Dr. David Ratz is adjunct professor in the Department of History and the Department of Northern Studies at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Dr. Ratz also holds the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Canadian Force Army Reserve. Dr. Michel Beaulieu is Professor of History at Lakehead University. He is also a docent of Social Science History at the University of Helsinki, docent of Modern North American History at the University of Oulu, and an associate of the Wilson Institute for Canadian History at McMaster University. He is also an honorary colonel with the Canadian Armed Forces. Today, we have been in dialogue regarding their newly published book, The Little Third Reich on Lake Superior, A History of Internment Camp R, published in Edmonton by University of Alberta Press 2015. Thank you wholeheartedly.